my daughter Michelle, who grew up as a daughter of this church, um, when she graduated from high school, she uh, and was very involved in our church and very involved in the worship team, as you can see this morning. Um, she uh, was asked by some missionary friends of ours if she might come and spend a season helping them homeschool their children on the mission field in West Africa. And so she went in, uh, she was in the air 2001, 2002, December 31st to January 1st. And, um, and she uh, came back at the end of that semester saying, I think God wants me to move there and spend the rest of my life there. And so she went through the process of, of becoming trained and examined and, uh, and eventually she went back to, to that place and spent a few years there as a, a single woman, and, uh, which was very hard. But uh, after a few years, um, God led her to marry the only Christian, single, English-speaking man in the entire country. And that is Ben. And they have served there together in that same country ever since then for, um, you know, coming on 20 years, not quite 20 years yet. But um, this uh, last year, Ben finished his seminary degree on top of all the work of uh, parenting and, and ministering there in that land. And uh, so, and every time they come here for a visit, uh, it's, we try to get, make sure that Ben is invited into our pulpit at least one Sunday. And today, we're happy to uh, have him here to preach to us. And, uh, and I'm sure that uh, you will enjoy it and get a lot out of it. Um, we only have a few more weeks with them. Their final week is the 13th of August that they'll be going back that day. Um, so afterwards, you know, grab all you can of their uh, fellowship because it won't be too many more Sundays that, that we'll have them with us. Ben. Good morning, everybody. It's nice to see so many familiar faces. And I definitely got the, the better end of the bargain, finding Michelle. Uh, she was not exactly spoiled for choice. Uh, but I'm always grateful to be part of your family, Jack and Marianne, how you've always welcomed me here. And GPC, you've welcomed me into your family too, to be part of you. So it's always a pleasure and always a privilege to come and share with you. And my goal this morning, as in any time I get to come and preach, is just to preach Christ and to preach Christ crucified. We're going to be looking at Psalm 22 together. Um, Psalm 22 is sometimes known as the little gospel or the fifth gospel. We'll find out why as we read through it. For me, it's become, I've come to see it, I think, as one of the most significant of all the Psalms, if not the most significant of all the Psalms because it plays such an important role in foretelling the gospel and explaining the significance of the gospel, even foretelling the cross and explaining the significance of the cross. So even as we go into the Old Testament today, we're going to be learning about what Christ accomplished on the cross and some of the impact that that has on us. So let me just pray as we begin. 
Jesus, thank you that you went to the cross. I thank you, God, that this was a deliberate part of your plan for the redemption of all of mankind, for the salvation of all of your creation. And thank you for your word that doesn't just leave us in the darkness, but explains to us, reveals your plan to us. Thank you that you were revealing your plan for the cross even long before it happened, preparing your people to be ready for the cross. And thank you that we can look back through your word now and more deeply appreciate, more deeply understand what you did for us, Jesus, on the cross. Okay, I'm going to start just by reading the psalm through. And then we'll go back through and discuss it in a bit more detail. So we're reading from the ESV. I believe you have it here. Yes. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted. They trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death, for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied, and those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All 
the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow down all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. I could just stop now. But let's delve a bit deeper. So this is a psalm. At least it begins as a psalm about suffering. And I don't know if any of you have ever suffered anything. <laughs> I suspect probably yes. We were praying about some of the suffering that's going on in this congregation just a few minutes ago. But suffering is just one of those universal experiences of us as humans, right? Jesus promised us that we would suffer, and he's kept true to his promise. We all experience suffering. Um, the whole problem of suffering is something that's just plagued humankind for a very long time, isn't it? One of the, the first and main objections that you often hear to the idea of God is people will say, well, look, if there really is a good God, if there really is a loving God, why do we suffer? Why does he allow suffering? And that's often one of the main reasons that leads people to reject God, because of suffering. There's something about suffering that just <clears throat> offends us. And quite rightly so, because God created the world to be good and pure and full of life. Suffering offends God's will. It's the result of our sin, of our rebellion, right? It's the result of being cut off from God. That's why we suffer, and that's why suffering is so offensive to us. There's this deep-rooted desire in us for justice, for shalom, for peace, for the way things were always meant to be. And when things aren't like that, it offends us. You know, animals suffer too. Animals can suffer pain and other kinds of suffering, but they never ask the question, why am I suffering? Why is this so? But there's something in the human soul that just knows it's not right. We're not meant to suffer. And so when we do, it hurts all the more because of that injustice. Suffering can look like physical pain, it can look like social pain, it can look like emotional pain, it can look like relational pain, it can look like shame and stigma. There are so many different types of suffering, right? But so often the thing that really, really, really makes it hurt all the more is that feeling that it should not be. It's a big problem. I think one of the things that this psalm leads us into is to see that there's a fine line between suffering and despair. As I was kind of thinking over this, I was thinking of the image of kind of taking a walk along a clifftop. Suffering can sometimes be like walking along a clifftop, dangerously close to the edge, and the, the fear of what might happen. Despair is like when you, you step over the edge and you go down. There's a very fine line. There's only one step's difference. 
between walking along the clifftop and falling over the edge. So we're going to think about what's the difference between suffering with God, suffering in a godly way, and despairing, which is when we let go of God. Um, Whenever we read the Old Testament, there are usually three main ways in which we need to examine the passage that we're looking at for meaning and significance. First, we need to look at that Old Testament passage in its original context. What did it mean to the author of this passage? What did it mean to the people who received this passage? How was it significant to them? But we understand then that all the law and the prophets, all of the Old Testament is fulfilled in Christ. So the second level of meaning that we need to look for is how was this passage fulfilled in Christ? Whatever God has shown us here, how does this lead us to Christ? And how is it more deeply fulfilled in Christ? And then appreciating that, then we can begin to apply it to our own lives, to our our communities. How does this affect me? How can this change me? So we're going to look at those those three things as we go through together. Just looking a little bit at the Old Testament situation, this is a psalm of David. So whether that means it was written by David, that's how it's usually understood. We'll just go with that. But it was from the time of David at least. Looking at the life of David, it's hard to think. We're told quite a lot about the life of David and some of the difficult things that he went through. Uh, he, He certainly suffered a lot. He suffered for his faith in God. He suffered for trusting God. And yet, there are some things that come up in this psalm that are described quite vividly that don't seem to fit anything that we know about from David's life. My hands and my feet are pierced. There's quite a vivid description of an execution here, and we know that David was never executed. (laughs) And so there's something that we find in this passage. um, As David, in whatever context it was, we're not really told what the context was for David, but as he brings his experience of suffering to God, and as he cries out to God for consolation and help, God reveals something to him. Prophetically, something that's yet to come. Do you see what's going on? As David brings his suffering to God, God shows him something even bigger. God shows him something even bigger. And we're going to look in a bit more detail as we go on about what that bigger thing is. But there's something very significant happening for David here. We want to engage with his description of his suffering. And how he encounters God through that. But we also see that God is showing him something deeper that's yet to come. And that's fulfilled in Christ. Various other places, David, in the New Testament, David is referred to as a prophet. That he prophesied through his psalms. And so let's receive this as prophecy too. Um, As we think about the cross. As we think about Jesus on the cross. There has never been nor will there ever be a suffering greater than what Jesus suffered on the cross. The physical torment that he went through, the emotional torment that he went through, bearing in mind where he had come from to where he ended up on the cross, the depth to which he suffered from where he began has never been matched and never will be matched. So we're talking here about the biggest 
suffering that has ever happened. That's what David prophetically foresaw through his suffering. And we're going to look at Jesus' suffering. Jesus on the cross um, obviously was reflecting on his own situation. We're going to look again at him reflecting in his, on his own situation. But Jesus, in his mercy, and this is what I want you to kind of to imagine as we continue reading through the psalm. Jesus, in his mercy and in his love for his disciples who were gathered at his feet, wailing, he was teaching them. He was ministering to them from the cross. He was attending to their needs from the cross. What a remarkable Savior we have. That he was ministering to their needs from the cross. I'm going to show you why. Let's go through in a little more detail verse by verse now, or section by section. Verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I'm trusting that most of you hear those words and think, Ooh, I know those words. Because Jesus spoke them from the cross. Matthew uh, chapter 27 Verse 46, also in Mark's Gospel, we're told, as Jesus hung on the cross, he repeated these words, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some careless people over the centuries have taken that statement uh, and been led to the belief that Jesus was acknowledging that he had failed, that the cross was the failure of Jesus' plan. But far, far from it. Far from it. If I were to say to you all now, amazing grace, how sweet the sound. What comes into your minds? You're probably starting to sing the whole thing now, right? You're, you could probably, most of you, repeat all the verses. Or if I said to you, be thou my vision, O Lord of my heart. Most of you are probably, the whole thing comes to mind. For these first century Jews, they knew the Psalms like you all know hymns. You can pull out these hymns from years ago and you all sing because you all know them. Because you've sung them hundreds of times over. They knew the Psalms. So for Jesus to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was leading them. Call to mind Psalm 22. And we'll find as we get to the end, actually, Jesus quoted the last line of the Psalm right before he died. He quoted the last line of the psalm right before he died. If he could have, perhaps he would have recited the whole psalm. But, you know, he was bleeding and suffocating and dying in just horrible pain. He couldn't recite the whole psalm. And yet he gave them the first line and the last line. Such that when they went away and had time to reflect, they would go back to that psalm and say, Ah, oh, okay, this is the key to understanding what Jesus wanted to tell us as he was hanging on the cross. You see what I say about why Jesus, oh, he was preaching from the cross. He was preaching from the cross. He was not defeated. He knew exactly what was going on. And he was preaching it and explaining it in the best way they could understand. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, when we suffer, there are so many things that we can suffer. But isn't it just exponentially worse when we have to suffer those things alone. When we can suffer through things in community, whether that's just with your spouse, with your family, with your church, 
with your people. When we suffer through things together, we can lean on each other and support one another and console one another. But to suffer alone is just the worst. And that was Jesus' experience. Um, <laughs> I had to take, I'm not going to say his name because he's sitting right here. Our youngest child, I had to take him to the dentist just over a week ago. Oh, he's looking at me now. <laughs> he did not want to be there. <laughs> In his little heart, he was fighting for his life. I saw it. It was seriously, he was fighting for his life in his little heart. But I had to make him go through it because I love him. I had to make him go through it. His experience was not one of love and closeness and comfort. His experience was quite the opposite. We're going to talk a little bit later about the question of did God turn his face away from Christ at the cross or not? What was objectively true? The point I just want to start off with is that our subjective experience is real. All right? When we are suffering something, when we just can't sense God's presence and God's comfort, we might be able to say it's objectively true that God is always with us, yes. But I've got to be honest about what's going on in my subjective experience right now. And I think the Psalms do a really good job of teaching us the value of lament. This is a Psalm of lament. For, for me as a British person, you know, we're always taught from a young age, keep a stiff upper lip. You know, just bear up and keep calm and carry on and all of that stuff. Don't complain. Michelle's raising her eyebrows at me. <laughs> I happily admit that that is not a, god a godly aspect of my culture. Because God encourages us to lament. God encourages us to bring our subjective experience of life to him in all the mess and to just bring it to him and to tell him about it. To say, God, where are you? I can't see you. I can't. I Why haven't you healed me? Why haven't you freed me? I just can't feel your presence with me. It's really important that we're honest with God in those times. We can be released to be honest with God in those times. And Jesus himself was doing it on the cross. But then, the next section, verses 3 to 5, David, even having poured out his suffering to God, says, yet, but you, yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Having said in verse 2, I cry by day, but you do not answer. He says of Israel, to you they cried and were rescued. What David was going through here was experiencing suffering, experiencing distance from God, and yet disciplining himself to remember how God had been faithful to other people. To remember what is characteristic of God. Because God had promised, let's go back to Deuteronomy, God had promised that he was the God who would never leave them or forsake them as they were entering into the promised land. That was the promise. That has always been God's promise. That was Jesus' promise to his disciples right before he left. I will be with you always to the very end of the age. That's the objective truth. And so even as David is honest with his experience of suffering, even as Jesus on the cross is honest, pouring out his experience of suffering, he reminds himself, but God is the one who is faithful, and he has proven it time and time again. 
And we can remind ourselves when we are experiencing suffering, it is good to remind ourselves of the suffering of God's faithful people through history and in the ways in which God has been faithful to them. The ways in which God has met with his people in suffering and sometimes even delivered them from that suffering. It's good to remind ourselves. Um, verses 6 to 8, we go back into another cycle of lament. David says, I am a worm and not a man. And now he starts to speak of the social suffering that he experiences. He experiences physical pain. He experiences whatever else he might be going through. But now he's, he's calling out to God, crying out to God about the, the, the social pain that he experiences, having been ostracized, ridiculed, denigrated because of his trust in God. There's just something really otherworldly about putting our trust in God when we suffer. When we're suffering, the worldly approach, the humanistic approach, you could say, is to do everything you possibly can to get yourself out of that suffering. Take matters into your own hands. But the faithful people of God, the approach is to just come before God and ask for relief. To ask him for his solution. But that looks entirely ridiculous to people who aren't doing the same thing. It brings shame. It brings scorn. It brings ridicule. I want you to notice here some of the just really clear parallels between this psalm and the accounts of the, the cross in the Gospels. Uh, all who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. Verse 8 in the psalm. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. Matthew twenty-seven forty-three, The priests... And the Sadducees are scoffing at Jesus, ridiculing him. They say, he trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. It's exactly parallel. You see, David is foretelling prophetically what the chief priests would be yelling at the Messiah as he was crucified. Once again, David, and by extension Jesus, takes that experience of shame takes that experience of being an outcast because of his faith and he turns it back to God and says but you have always been faithful to me again from the experience of suffering nothing has changed and yet he's reminding himself of the ways in which God has been faithful to him in the past it's important for us to remember the times God has been faithful to us when we go into times of suffering to remind ourselves of the ways in which God has been faithful to us. Some people like to make a list. I've never really been very good at journaling, but I think that would be a really good idea. Keeping a journal of just ways in which God has been good to us so that when things get hard, we can refer back and remind ourselves and remind one another, do you remember when God did this? Do you remember this time when we just knew God's presence with us? Do you remember this time when he helped us? Do you remember this time when he responded clearly to our prayers to remind one another of the ways in which God has been faithful to us? Um, let's move forward. As we get now more into the, uh, the, the descriptions of suffering that David has given so far in this psalm could be quite generically applied 
to various of the things that he suffered, maybe when he was being chased around the wilderness by Saul, or when his sons were rebelling against him. There are various times that might fit the bill for things that we've seen so far, but now we start to get into some pretty intense descriptions of suffering that just go far beyond anything that David seems to have suffered. We get into a, almost a, a word-for-word description of Jesus' crucifixion. And again, we're going to find all of these links to the Gospels. As the Gospel writers went back, followed Jesus' cue to go look at Psalm 22, and they found this description of what they had seen. And then they very carefully, as they wrote their Gospels, made the links. We're going to look at a bunch of these now. Um, Verses 12 to... Well, let's start at verse 14. I'm poured out like water... And all my bones are out of joint. Isaiah 53:12, prophetically foretold, because he poured out his soul to death. Talking about the Messiah who poured out his soul to death. Psalm 22 also t- talks, uh, talks about the Messiah being poured out. All my bones are out of joint. You can imagine someone nailed up onto a cross, being pulled by their own body weight, shoulders and, and other joints just being pulled out of joint. Uh, similarly, you know, we talk, it talks about uh, his, his bones all being visible uh, in verse 17. It's that exposure as Jesus was crucified, that exposure. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. What a vivid description of, of Christ. Remember that we were told that in Gethsemane, even as he anticipated the cross, he was sweating blood. I don't know... What's the most painful experience that any of you have ever been through? Uh, A significant number of you have been through childbirth, I'm sure, but maybe there are even more painful experiences that people have been through. But the heat of pain is excruciating, isn't it? The heat of Jesus' pain is described for us here. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. We're reminded again in the Gospels of how Jesus was thirsty on the cross. He dried up. All those liquids just draining out of him. Blood and sweat and everything else just draining out of him. He was drying up. He was, he was dehydrated. This is a description straight from Psalm 22. For dogs encompass me. This is a bit impolite now, isn't it? But the, the Jews would often refer to Gentiles as dogs. That was a common derision kind of a term that they had for the Gentiles. So David is foretelling that the Messiah would be surrounded by Gentile dogs as he was crucified. They've pierced my hands and my feet. How much more clear could we ask for (laughs) of an Old Testament prediction of the crucifixion? At the time of David, no one knew anything about crucifixion. That wasn't something that happened. To have pierced hands and feet, what on earth does that mean? Uh... But thankfully, this, is, this, this translation is so well documented in Jewish tradition, far before the time of Christ, that no one can really level the accusation that Christians added that in later, because it's right there, prophetically foretold for us uh, in Psalm 22. And then, perhaps most remarkably of all, verse 18, they divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Did you know that all four of the Gospels include that detail? All four of the Gospels include that detail. Why? 
I'm sure. There were lots of things that happened around the cross. There were lots of little hustle and bustle and things happening all over the place. And yet all four of those gospel witnesses drew attention to the dividing of the clothes by the casting of lots. Why? Because they knew it was vital that God's people understand. Go read Psalm 22, because Psalm 22 explains what's happening here. Now we're going to get to the explanation. David says to God, and I'll put it to you that Jesus says to God, and we can say to God, but you, O Lord, do not be far off. I'm reading from verse 19. Oh, oh, you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. And I'm going to tweak the translation a little bit here. Save me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen. You have heard me. That's actually how it's written. And it's puzzled Bible commentators for a very long time. Because you don't normally, in, particularly in the Psalms, you normally get contained thoughts one after the other. Maybe little couplets that explain one thought, and then the next thought, and then the next thought. But right here, within one statement, David goes from saying, save me, save me, to you have heard me. It's so abrupt. It's so abrupt, it kind of jars you and makes you think, whoa, hang on, what just happened? What just changed? Because this is the turning point in the whole psalm. Jesus didn't come down from the cross at this point. God did not rescue Jesus from the cross. His situation did not change. His suffering did not end at that point. What changed, what changed for David, perhaps what came to Christ at this point, and what God offers us in suffering, is a switch of perspective. When our experience tells us that we are cut off from God, that we are not being helped by God, and then all of a sudden God shows you, no, I really am here. I'm with you. I've heard you. And I will save you. That's the switch. That's the switch. There are all sorts of health and wealth preachers who will promise you, if you have enough faith, God will take away all of your suffering now. Jesus does not promise that. He promised us the opposite, really. He promised us that if we're faithful to follow him, we will suffer. But he promises to be with us, and he promises that everything we go through will work together for our good. He promises that whatever we suffer is part of his plan for our good, for his kingdom, when we bring our suffering to him, he can do eternally significant things with it. As Jesus brought his suffering to his father, the father did the most eternally significant thing with it. <laughs> I'm coming toward the end now. Thank you kids for being patient. Now we come to Jesus declaring the significance of what's happening on the cross. He's pouring out his suffering to God, and yet he's leading his people to understand the significance of what's happening. He calls the congregation, his disciples, his people, to praise. 
Do you understand this? Jesus is hanging on the cross, his life bleeding away, and he's calling God's faithful people to praise, to worship. He's declaring to them that the kingdom of God has come here and now at the cross. And he's calling them to worship. You who fear the Lord, praise him. You offspring of Jacob, glorify and stand in awe of him. Listen to this, verse 24. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, and he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried. There is a theological question, isn't there, about at the cross, did the Father turn his face away from Jesus? Did the Father reject the Son, even for the briefest moment? I would put it to you, objectively speaking, no, he did not. Even if Jesus went for a time of not being able to sense the Father's presence, to sense the Father's love, yet the Father never once actually turned away. The Father never once abandoned the Son, and He will never once abandon you. Even if you can't feel it, He will never abandon you, or us, or His people. Never. You get it? Never. Never. And now as the significance of the cross comes pouring out, all the ends of the earth shall remember Jesus is declaring from the cross now, the doors are open. Jesus opened the doors to his kingdom on the cross that all the nations could come, all the generations could come. This is all part of God's promise. God said through Isaiah, I will make you the Messiah as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. I don't know if any of you here are have a strong Jewish heritage. Maybe some of us have a little bit of Jewish DNA in us. Truth is, frankly, most of us are more closely related to the Gentile dogs who crucified him, right? We're the Gentile dogs who don't deserve. <laughs> Sorry for the harsh language. That's who we are. And yet, because of what Jesus did on the cross, he's just declared it. The door is open to the nations, and we can come in. We can come in. talks about declaring this to generations and peoples yet unborn. Well, just think about this. 2,000 years after these events, here I am declaring it to you. And I'm declaring it to you because someone declared it to me. And someone else declared it to them before. <laughs> it's still happening. What a glorious thing. 2,000 years after this event, nothing more significant has happened. We're still declaring what Jesus did on the cross 2,000 years ago. And there is nothing better to declare. And there never will be. This is the declaration that brings an end to our suffering. Verse 31, finally. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. Hey, here's the trick. In the Hebrew, there is no he. It's an impersonal sentence. It's like, it is done. It is done. What did Jesus say in John's Gospel? It's done. It's finished. Then he hung his head. What's done? What is finished? Everything we've just heard. Salvation has come. An end to suffering. An end to pain has come. 
And while we might have to live in the experience of it subjectively for a little while longer, it is done. We're left with a promise, aren't we? Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. Why? Why? Because of Christ's suffering. He took our suffering. It is done. As we come to celebrate what we're about to celebrate, this is a way in which we remind one another and remind ourselves that it's done. It's finished. He has done it. This is a little bit unusual, but I've just got this idea in my mind. Can I invite you all to stand up for a moment? And as a congregation, this isn't just going to come from me, as a congregation, if you're in a place where you can say this, I'm going to, on the count of three, I just want us to declare together, He has done it. Before we celebrate, can we do that? One, two, three. He has done it. Okay. Amen.